0: SECTION 9 OF HEART, A SCHOOLBOY'S JOURNAL This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gray Clayton. HEART, A SCHOOLBOY'S JOURNAL BY EDMUNDO DE AMICIS Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood JANUARY PART 2 THE SARDINIAN DRUMOVOY MONTHLY STORY On the first day of the Battle of Costosa, the 24th of July, 1848, about sixty soldiers belonging to an infantry regiment of our army, who had been sent to a hill to occupy a lonely house, suddenly found themselves attacked by two companies of Austrian soldiers, who, showering them with bullets from various quarters, hardly gave them time to take refuge in the house and to barricade the doors, after leaving several dead and wounded in the field. Having barred the doors, our men ran in haste to the windows of the ground floor and the first storey, and began to fire brisk discharges at their assailants, who, approaching gradually, ranged in a semicircle, made vigorous reply. These sixty Italian soldiers were commanded by two non-commissioned officers and a captain, a tall, thin, austere old man with white hair and a moustache. And with them was a Sardinian drummer boy, a lad of little over fourteen, who did not look twelve, small with an olive-brown complexion and small, deep-set, sparkling eyes. The captain directed the defence from a room on the first floor, hurling commands like pistol shots, and no sign of emotion was visible on his iron countenance. The drummer-boy, a little pale but firm on his legs, had jumped upon a table and was holding fast to the wall and stretching out his neck in order to gaze out of the windows. Through the smoke on the fields he saw the white uniforms of the Austrians who were slowly advancing. The house was situated at the summit of a steep declivity, and on the side of a slope it had one high window, corresponding to a chamber on the roof. Therefore the Austrians did not threaten the house from that quarter, and the slope was free. The fire beat only on the front and the two ends. But it was a fearful fire. The hailstorm of leaden bullets which split the walls on the outside, ground the tiles to powder and in the interior cracked ceilings, furniture, window-frames and door-frames, sending splinters of wood flying through the air, and clouds of plaster and fragments of kitchen utensils and glass, whizzing and rebounding and breaking everything with noise enough to smash one's skull. From time to time one of the soldiers who were firing from the windows fell, crashing back to the floor, and was dragged to one side. Some staggered from room to room, pressing their hands on their wounds. There was already one dead body in the kitchen with his forehead cleft. The semicircle of the enemy was drawing together. At a certain point the captain, hitherto impassive, was seen to make a gesture of uneasiness and to leave the room with huge strides, followed by a sergeant. Three minutes later the sergeant returned on a run and summoned the drummer boy, making him a sign to follow. The lad followed him at a quick pace up the wooden staircase and entered with him into a bare garret where he saw the captain writing with a pencil on a sheet of paper as he leaned against the little window, and on the floor at his feet laid the well-rope. The captain folded the sheet of paper and said sharply, as he fixed his cold, grey eyes, before which all the soldiers trembled, on the boy, "'Drummer!' the drummer boy put his hand to his cap. "'You have courage?' asked the captain. The boy's eyes flashed. "'Yes, captain!' he replied. "'Look down there,' said the captain, pushing him to the window. "'On the plain, near the houses of Villafranca, where there is a gleam of bayonets.' There stand our troops, motionless. You are to take this message, tie yourself to the rope, descend from the window, get down that slope in an instant, make your way across the fields, reach our men, and give the note to the first officer you see. Throw off your belt and knapsack. The drummer boy took off his belt and his knapsack and thrust the note into his breast pocket. "'The sergeant flung the rope out of the window "'and held one end of it clutched fast in his hands. "'The captain helped the lad to clamber out of the small window "'with his back turned to the field. "'Now look out,' he said. "'The salvation of this detachment lies in your courage and in your legs.' "'Trust to me, Signor captain,' replied the drummer boy as he let himself down. "'Bend over on the slope,' said the captain, "'grasping the rope with the sergeant. "'Never fear! God aid you!' In a few moments the drummer boy was on the ground. The sergeant drew in the rope and disappeared. The captain stepped boldly in front of the window and saw the boy flying down the slope. He was already hoping that the boy had succeeded in escaping unobserved, WHEN FIVE OR SIX LITTLE PUFFS OF DUST, WHICH ROSE FROM THE EARTH IN FRONT OF AND BEHIND THE LAD, WARNED HIM THAT HE HAD BEEN espied BY THE AUSTRIANS, WHO WERE FIRING DOWN ON HIM FROM THE TOP OF THE HILL. THESE LITTLE CLOUDS WERE THROWN INTO THE AIR BY THE BULLETS. BUT THE DRUMMER BOY CONTINUED TO RUN AT A HEADLONG SPEED. ALL AT ONCE HE fell. KILLED! ROARED THE CAPTAIN, CLENCHING HIS FISTS. But before he had uttered the word, he saw the drummer spring up again. Ah, only a fall, the captain said to himself, and drew a long breath. The drummer, in fact, set out again at full speed, but he limped. He's turned his ankle, thought the captain. Again several cloudlets of dust rose here and there about the lad, but ever more distant. He was safe. The captain gave a shout of triumph, but he continued to follow him with his eyes, "'trembling because it was an affair of minutes. "'If he didn't arrive yonder in the shortest possible time "'with the note, which called for instant succour, "'either all his soldiers would be killed, "'or he should be obliged to surrender himself a prisoner with them. "'The boy ran rapidly for a space, "'and then relaxed his pace and limped, "'and then resumed his course, "'but grew constantly more wearied, "'and every little while he stumbled and paused.' Perhaps a bullet has grazed him, thought the captain, and he noted all his movements, quivering with excitement, and he encouraged him. He spoke to him as though the boy could hear him. He measured constantly with a flashing eye the space intervening between the fleeing figure and the gleam of arms, which you could see in the distance, amid the fields of grain gilded by the sun. And meanwhile he heard beneath... The imperious and angry shouts of the sergeants and the officers, the piercing groans of the wounded, the ruin of furniture, and the fall of rubbish. "'On! Courage!' he shouted, following the far-off drummer with a glance. "'Forward! Run!' "'He halts that cursed boy. Ah, he resumes his course.' An officer came panting to tell him that the enemy, without slackening their fire, were flinging out a white flag to hint at a surrender. Don't reply to them, he cried, without taking his eyes from the boy who was already on the plain, but who was no longer running, and who seemed to be dragging himself along with difficulty. Go! Run! said the captain, clenching his teeth and his fists. Let them kill you! Die, you rascal, but go! And then he uttered a horrible oath. "'Ah, the infamous poltroon! He has sat down!' "'In fact, the boy whose head he had hitherto been able to see above a field of grain "'had disappeared, as though he had fallen. "'But after the lapse of a minute, it came into sight again. "'Finally it was lost behind the hedges, and the captain saw it no more. "'And then the captain came down resolutely. "'The bullets were coming in at a tempest.' The rooms were encumbered with the wounded, some of whom were whirling around like drunken men and clutching at the furniture. The walls and the floor were bespattered with blood. Corpses lay across the doorways. The lieutenant had his arm shattered by a ball. Smoke and clouds of dust enveloped everything. "'Courage!' shouted the captain. "'Stand firm at your post. Relief is on the way. Courage for a little while longer.' The Austrians had approached still nearer. Their contorted faces were already visible through the smoke. And amid the crash of the firing, their furious shouts were heard, uttering insults, suggesting a surrender, and threatening slaughter. Some of the soldiers were terrified and withdrew from the windows. The sergeants drove them forward again. But the fire of the defence weakened. Discouragement was seen on all faces. It was not possible to resist much longer. And then the fire of the Austrians slackened, and a thundering voice shouted, first in German and then in Italian, Surrender! No! shouted the captain from the window, and the firing recommenced, more fast and furious on both sides. More soldiers fell. Already more than one window was without defenders. The fatal moment was near at hand. The captain muttered through his teeth in a strangled voice, They're not coming, they're not coming, and he rushed wildly about, twisting his sword in his convulsively clenched hand and resolved to die. When a sergeant, descending from the garret, uttered a piercing shout, They are coming! They are coming, repeated the captain with a cry of joy. And that cry all well and wounded, sergeants and officers, rushed to the windows, and the resistance became fierce once more. A few moments later a sort of uncertainty was noticeable, a beginning of disorder among the foe. The captain hastily collected a little troop in the room on the ground floor in order to make a sortie with fixed bayonet, and then he flew upstairs. Scarcely had he arrived there, when they heard a hasty trampling of feet accompanied by a formidable hurrah and saw from the windows the two pointed hats of the Italian caribineers advancing through the smoke, a squadron rushing forward at great speed and a lightning flash of blades whirling in the air as they fell on the heads, shoulders and on backs. And then the troop darted out of the door with bayonets presented. The enemy wavered, were thrown into disorder and turned in flight. The field was cleared, the house was free, and a little later two battalions of Italian infantry and two cannon occupied the height. The captains, with the soldiers that remained to him, rejoined his regiment, went on fighting, and was slightly wounded in the left hand by a spent ball in the final assault with bayonets. The day ended with the victory on our side. But on the following day, the conflict having begun again, the Italians were defeated by the overwhelming numbers of the Austrians in spite of a valorous resistance, and on the morning of the 27th they sadly retreated towards Mincio. The captain, although wounded, made the march on foot with his soldiers, weary and silent, and arrived at the close of the day at Guito on the Mincio. He at once sought out his lieutenants, who had been picked up by the ambulance with his arm shattered, and who must have arrived before him. He was directed to a church, where the field hospital had been installed in haste. He went there. The church was full of wounded men, ranged in two lines of beds, and on mattresses spread on the floor. Two doctors and numerous assistants were going and coming, busily occupied, and suppressed cries and groans could be heard. No sooner had the captain entered than he halted and cast a glance around in search of his officer. At that moment he heard himself called in a weak voice. "Signor Captain!' He turned around. It was his drummer-boy. He was lying on a cot-bed, covered to the breast with a coarse window-curtain in red and white squares, with his arms on the outside, pale and thin, But his eyes still sparkled like black gems are you here asked the captain amazed but still sharply bravo you did your duty i did all i could replied the drummer boy were you wounded said the captain seeking with his eyes for his officer in the neighbouring beds what could one expect said the lad who gained courage by speaking expressing the lofty satisfaction of having been wounded for the first time, without which he would not have dared to open his mouth into the presence of his captain. I had a fine run, all bent over, but suddenly they caught sight of me. I should have arrived twenty minutes earlier if they had not hit me. Luckily I soon came across a captain of the staff, to whom I gave the note. But it was hard work to get down after that little pat. I was dying of thirst. I was afraid that I should not get there at all. "'I wept with rage at the thought that at every moment of delay "'another man was setting out yonder for the other world. "'But enough. I did what I could. I am content. "'But with your permission, Captain, you should look to yourself. "'You are losing blood.' "'Several drops of blood had, in fact, "'trickled down on the Captain's fingers from his imperfectly bandaged palm. "'Would you like to have me give the bandage a turn, Captain? "'Hold it here a minute.' The captain held out his left hand, and stretched out his right to help the lad to loosen the knot, and to tie it again. But no sooner had the boy raised himself from his pillow, than he turned pale, and was obliged to fall back once more. That will do, that will do, said the captain, looking at him and withdrawing his bandaged hand, which the other tried to retain. Attend to your own affairs, instead of thinking of others, for things that are not severe may become serious if they are neglected. The drummer boy shook his head. "'But you,' said the captain, observing him attentively, "'must have lost a great deal of blood to be as weak as this.' "'Lost blood?' replied the boy with a smile. "'Something else beside blood. Look.' He drew aside the coverlet. The captain started back in horror. The lad had but one leg. His left leg had been cut off above the knee. The stump was wrapped in blood-stained cloths. At that moment, a small, fat military surgeon passed in his shirt sleeves. "'Ah, Captain!' he said, rapidly nodding towards the drummer. "'This is a sad case. "'There is a leg that might have been saved "'if he had not exerted himself in such a crazy manner. "'That cursed inflammation! "'It had to be cut off away up here. "'Oh, but he's a brave lad, I can assure you. "'He never shed a tear nor uttered a cry. "'He was proud of being an Italian boy "'while I was performing the operation.' "'upon my word of honour. "'He comes of a good race, by heavens!' "'And he went away on a run. "'The captain wrinkled his heavy white brows, "'gazed fixedly at the drummer-boy, "'and spread the coverlet over him again, "'and slowly, almost unconsciously, "'and still gazing intently at him, "'he raised his hands to his head "'and lifted his cap. "'Senior captain!' exclaimed the boy in amazement. "'What are you doing, senior captain, to me?' And then that rough soldier, who had never before said a gentle word to an inferior, replied in an indescribably sweet and tender voice, I am only a captain. You are a hero. He bent over with widespread arms upon the drummer boy and pressed him three times to his heart. The Love of Country, Tuesday 24th since the tale of the drummer boy has touched your heart it should be easy for you this morning to write your composition for examination why you love italy well why do i love italy do not a hundred answers present themselves to you on the instant i love italy because my mother is an italian because the blood that flows in my veins is italian Because the soil in which I bury the dead whom my mother mourns and whom my father venerates is Italian. Because the town in which I was born, the language that I speak, the books that educate me, because my brother, my sister, my comrades, the great people among whom I live, and the beautiful nature which surrounds me, and all that I see, that I love, that I study, that I admire, is Italian. Oh, you cannot feel that affection to the full. You will feel it when you become a man, when returning from a long journey after a prolonged absence, you step up in the morning to the bulwarks of the vessel and see on the distant horizon the lofty blue mountains of your country. You will feel it then in the impetuous flood of tenderness which will fill your eyes with tears and will wrest a cry from your heart. You will feel it in some great and distant city in that impulse of the soul which will draw you from the strange throng towards a working man from whom you have heard in passing a word in your own tongue. You will feel it in that sad, haughty anger which will drive the blood in your brow when you hear insults to your country from the mouth of a stranger. You will feel it in more proud and vigorous measure on the day when the menace of a hostile race shall call forth a tempest of fire upon your country. And when you shall behold arms raging on every side, youths thronged in legions, fathers kissing their children and saying, Courage! Mothers bidding adieu to their young sons and crying, Conquer! You will feel it like a joy divine if you have the good fortune to behold the re-entrance to your town of the regiments, weary, ragged, with thin ranks, terrible, with the splendour of victor in their eyes, and their banners torn by bullets, followed by a vast convoy of brave fellows, bearing their bandaged heads and their stumps of arms loftily, amid a wild throng, which covers them with flowers, with blessings, and with kisses. Then you will comprehend the love of country. Then you will feel your country, Enrico. It is a grand and sacred thing. May I one day see you return in safety from a battle fought for her. Safe, you who are my flesh and soul. But if I should learn that you had preserved your life because you were concealed from death, your father, who now welcomes you with a cry of joy when you return from school, would then receive you with a sob of anguish. I should never be able to love you again. I should die with that dagger in my heart your father. Envy, Wednesday 25th The boy who wrote the best composition on The Love of Country was De Rossi, as usual, and Votini thought himself sure of the first medal. I like Votini well enough, though he is rather vain and does dress up a trifle too much, but it makes me scorn him, now that I am his neighbour on the bench, to see how envious he is of De Rossi. He would like to rival him. He studies hard, but he cannot do it by any possibility, for De Rossi is ten times as strong as he is on every point. And Votini rails at him. Carlo Nobis embers him too, but he has so much pride in his body that, purely from pride, he keeps it hidden. Votini, on the other hand, betrays himself. He complains at home of his difficulties and says that the master is unjust to him. When De Rossi replies so promptly and so well to questions, as he always does, Bottini's face clouds over, he hangs his head, pretends not to hear, or tries to laugh, but he laughs awkwardly. And everyone knows about it, so that when the master praises De Rossi, they all turn to look at Bottini, who chews his venom, and Muratorino makes a hare's face at him. Today, for instance, he was put on the rack. The principal entered the room and announced the result of the examination. Derosi ten tenths and the first medal. Botini gave a huge sneeze. The master looked at him. It was not hard to understand the matter. Votini, he said, do not let the serpent of envy enter your body. It is a serpent that gnaws at the brain and corrupts the heart. Everyone stared at him except Derosi. Bodini tried to make some answer, but could not. He sat there as though turned to stone, and with a white face. And then, while the master was conducting the lesson, he began to write in large characters on a sheet of paper, I am not jealous of those who gain the first medal through favoritism and injustice. It was a note which he meant to send to De but in the meantime I saw that de neighbours were plotting amongst themselves, and whispering in each other's ears, and one, cut with a penknife from paper, a big medal, on which they had drawn a black serpent. Votini also noticed this. The master went out for a few moments. All at once de Rossi's friends rose and left their seats, for the purpose of coming and solemnly presenting the paper medal to Votini. The whole class was prepared for a scene. Bottini had already begun to quiver all over. De Rossi exclaimed, Give that to me! So much the better, they replied. You are the one who ought to carry it. De Rossi took the medal and tore it into bits. At that moment the master returned and resumed the lesson. I kept my eye on Bottini. He had turned as red as a coal. He took his sheet of paper, very, very quietly, as though in absence of mind, rolled it into a ball on the sly, put it in his mouth, chewed it a little, and then spit it out under the bench. And then school broke up. Votini, who was a little confused, dropped his blotting paper as he passed to Rossi. De Rossi politely picked it up, put it in Votini's satchel, and helped him to buckle the straps. Botini dared not raise his eyes. Frenti's mother, Saturday the 28th. But Votini is stubborn. Yesterday morning, during the lesson on religion, in the presence of the principal, the teacher asked De Rossi if he knew by heart the two couplets in the reading book. Wherever I turn my gaze, tis thee great God I see. De Rossi said that he did not, and Votini suddenly exclaimed, I know them, with a smile as though to pique De Rossi. But he was piqued himself instead, for he could not recite the poetry, because Franty's mother suddenly flew into the schoolroom, breathless, with her grey hair dishevelled, and all wet with snow, and pushing before her her son, who had been suspended from school for a week. What a sad scene we were doomed to witness! The poor woman flung herself almost on her knees before the principal, with clasped hands, and besought him. Oh, senior director, do me the favor to put my boy back in school. He has been at home for three days. I have kept him hidden, but God have mercy on him. If his father finds out about this affair, he will murder him. Have pity. I no longer know what to do. I entreat you with my whole soul. The principal tried to lead her out, but she resisted and continued to pray and weep. Oh, if you only knew the trouble that this boy has caused me, you would have pity. Do me this favour. I hope that he will reform. I shall not live long, senior director. I bear death within me. But I should like to see him reformed before my death, because— And she broke into a passion of weeping. He is my son. I love him. I shall die in despair. Take him back once more, senior director, that a misfortune may not happen in the family do it out of pity for a poor woman and she covered her face with her hands and sobbed franti stood impassive and hung his head the headmaster looked at him reflected a little and then said franti go to your place and then the woman removed her hands from her face quite comforted and began to express thanks upon thanks Without giving the director a chance to speak, and made her way towards the door, wiping her hands, and saying hastily, I beg of you, my son, may all have patience. Thanks, Signor Director, you have performed a deed of mercy. Be a good boy. Good day, boys. Thanks, Signor Teacher. Goodbye, and forgive a poor mother. And after bestowing another supplicating glance on her son from the door, she went away, pulling up the shawl which was trailing after her, pale, bent, with a head which still shook, and we heard her coughing all the way down the stairs. The principal gazed intently at Franti amid the silence of the class, and said to him in stern accents, Franti, you are killing your mother. We all turned to look at Franti, and that infamous boy smiled. Hope, Sunday, ninth. Very beautiful, Enrico, was the impulse which made you fling yourself on your mother's heart on your return from your lesson on religion. Yes, your master said grand and consoling things to you. God threw us in each other's hands. He will never part us. When I die, when your father dies, we shall not speak to each other those despairing words, "Mamma, Papa, Enrico, I shall never see you again. We shall see each other again in another life where he who has suffered much in this life will receive reward. Where he who has loved much on earth will find again the souls whom he has loved in a world without sin, without sorrow, and without death. But we must all render ourselves worthy of that other life. Reflect, my son. Every good action of yours, every impulse of affection for those who love you, Every courteous act towards your companions, every noble thought of yours, is like a leap towards that other world. And every misfortune also serves to raise you towards that world, every sorrow, since it has the expiation of a sin, just as every tear blots out a stain. Make it your rule to become better and more loving every day than the day before. Say every morning, TODAY I SHALL DO SOMETHING FOR WHICH MY CONSCIENCE WILL PRAISE ME, AND WITH WHICH MY FATHER WILL BE SATISFIED, SOMETHING WHICH WILL RENDER ME BELOVED BY SUCH OR SUCH A COMRADE, BY MY TEACHER, BY MY BROTHER, OR BY OTHERS. AND PRAY GOD TO GIVE YOU THE STRENGTH TO PUT YOUR RESOLUTION INTO PRACTICE. LORD, I WISH TO BE GOOD, NOBLE, COURAGEOUS, GENTLE, SINCERE, HELP ME. GRANT ME THAT EVERY NIGHT WHEN MY MOTHER GIVES ME HER LAST KISS, I may be able to say to her, you kissed this night a nobler and more worthy boy than you kissed last night. Keep always in your thoughts that other supernatural and blessed Enrico, which you may be after this life. And pray. You cannot imagine the sweetness that you experience, how much better a mother feels when she sees her child with hands clasped in prayer. When I behold you praying, it seems impossible to me that there should not be someone there gazing at you and listening to you. And then I believe more firmly that there is a supreme goodness and an infinite piety. I love you more, I work with more ardour, I endure with more force, I forgive with all my heart, and I think of death with serenity. O dear and good God! to hear once more after death the voice of my mother, to meet my children again, to see my Enrico once more, my Enrico, blessed and immortal, and to clasp him in an embrace which shall nevermore be loosed, nevermore, nevermore, to all eternity. Oh, pray, let us pray, let us love each other, let us be good, let us bear this celestial hope in our hearts and souls, my adored child your mother. End of section 9 Recording by Gray Clayton